Hear the word of God, Colossians in chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruits and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruits in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The passage I read, of course, is from Colossians and chapter 1. If you have opportunity in a Bible, you may want to turn uh, to that. I'll be speaking only, I think, from this little expression from the end of verse 10, which is, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, it isn't my plan necessary, necessarily to uh, pause at every phrase uh, in Colossians. That would take us more time than we probably should as we work through this. But at least as we're work, working through this very significant prayer, I want to take some time. Plus, this goes nicely, I think, with what we began last Sunday. So I want to bring that piece, if you will, to conclusion. This expression in the end of verse 10, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Obviously, this is a prayer that Paul is praying for this church in Colossae. He has not met them, but he has heard about them uh, through this, uh, through the through the word that was given to him from Epaphras, uh, this faithful minister of the gospel, faithful minister of Christ, who had gone to Colossae, shared the gospel. Now visiting Paul while Paul is in prison, gives him word of the faith and love that this church has, the faith in Christ, the love for all the saints that this church has, their hope that fuels their faith and love. So, so Paul knows of them and he prays for them. He gives thanks for them first as we see. Thanks for this faith and love because he knows that these faith and love and hope are gifts that God gives to his people. And so he gives thanks not to them, but for them. Give thanks to God for them because of what he sees, because of what God has given to them. Faith in Christ, love for all the saints, a great hope and assurance. So he gives thanks to God for them. And then he makes particular requests. And we can learn from his request what is most important for us as we live our lives. Because really what he's after, really what he desires for them is that they walk or live, that they walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's his heart's desire. They walk worthy of the Lord, not worthy to be able to earn the favor of God, but but walk worthy of who God is, who Christ is in our lives as the Lord, the one who is our Savior, the one who has 
redeemed us. We're to live fully pleasing to Him. Now in order to do that, of course, he writes that we need to be filled, filled that is controlled by nothing else to inform our lives. I don't know if you were, I'm sure you were paying attention as we prayed this prayer of confession. um, That it's God who is to inform us. It is God who is to define us. God who is to direct us. And yet we live to inform ourselves. We, we, We try to plan out our own lives. We try to define who we are and what we should be and how we should be it. And And we don't look to God. That's sin in our lives. And so Paul prays that we be filled, controlled by, informed by completely a knowledge of God's will. How else are we going to be able to live worthy of him unless we know him? How else are we going to live worthy of him unless we know his will? How else are we going to be able to please him in everything unless we know what is pleasing to him? That is, unless we know his will. So Paul prays that we be filled with a knowledge of God's will. And this is spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual meaning. Not that it's mystical or not that it's it's weird and wacky necessarily. Not that it takes a... You know, a secret decoder ring in order to know what that is. But that it's spiritual. It comes from God. It's his wisdom. It's his understanding of who we are and who he is and what that means for our lives. This spiritual wisdom and understanding to tell us who we are before God, what we need most especially to be reconciled to Him, thus to live in His presence and to live in His grace and to live in His blessing, what to value in life, what is really valuable, so that we live wisely, that we live with understanding, so we can love that which God loves, so that we can embrace that which is valuable to him and allow that to govern our lives if you will rather than that which he despises that which is not pleasing to him so we're to live we're to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom understanding so as to walk worthy of him that's necessary to walk worthy of him fully pleasing in his sight um, that's what it means when we say that we're to live to glorify God we're to glorify him we're to reflect him And we're to reflect Him because we've been created in His image. We've been created to show Him. We've been created to reflect Him. We've been created to show His worth and His greatness. And we do that, of course, by worship, by praising Him. He's worthy of our praise. We do that in the context of our obedience because He's worthy of our loyalty. He's worthy of our trust so that we trust His wisdom and not our own. So that we trust that what He says is right and good is right and good rather than trusting our own sense of what is right and good or anybody else's. And so we live worthy of Him as we obey Him. So Paul moves through this prayer and he says that those for whom he's praying who are actually filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding who, who then walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, are those who bear fruit in every good work. As you see this person's desire to please God, you see his understanding being filled with the knowledge of God's will, being controlled by that in life. That is a person who will do that which is good in every good work. He will bear fruit. He will do that which is good. Good. Certainly he will. 
And then he ends all of that or moves on and says, bearing fruits in every good word, work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, isn't that where he started? I mean, didn't he begin by saying that we should be filled with the knowledge of God's will? And now he's saying, after all of this, that a person who lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing in his sight, is one who will be increasing in their knowledge of God. And the answer is yes. He did start there. Yes, he still is there. This is still very important. And, and it isn't, it seems to me, that Paul is simply being redundant here for emphasis, though he well could be. We know that those who know God's will really know it. Know just not the fact of it, not just being able to take a multiple choice test and pass concerning what is pleasing to God, but be filled with the knowledge of this will. We know in the scripture that to know is more than just factual knowledge. It's to know relationally. It's to be related to it. It's to have been affected by it. It's to have had dealings with God to know him. So a person who's really knowledgeable, who really knows God's will as a person who values it, who embraces it, who's been affected by it, who deals with it, if you will, engages with the very will of God. This is one who, who then goes out to live fully pleasing to God, fully pleasing. This is the one who then bears fruit in every good work, who does that which is good. And certainly that is true, that if we know the very will of God, really know it, then we will desire to do it, because to know it is to trust it. To trust it is to desire to do it. Uh, John Frame, a theologian of some notes, puts it like this. He says, God's friends necessarily seek to obey him, and the better they know him, the more obedient they become. Such, is a, relation, such a relation to God is inevitably, inevitably uh, a sanctifying experience. Being near him transforms us as the biblical pictures of God's glory being transferred to his people, of his spirit descending upon them, of their being conformed to his image indicate. Frame's point is that knowing God really, trusting him really, leads to our obedience. There's something about being closely related to God that moves us to trust, that moves us to follow him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, John 14, 15. Jesus said, if we're in relationship together, if you love me, if you know me, if you have a knowledge of my will, if you're increasing in the knowledge of me, if you know who I am as the Lord, if you know who I am as the one who has saved you, you'll love me, Paul speaks of it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, he says. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says, once you know that, once you know the will of God expressed through the work of Christ for you, then that will captivate you, constrain you, control you, fill you, 
so that you'll no longer live for yourself, but for this one who've, who's died and given himself for you. That beam frames point. This verse, Second Corinthians chapter 3, just a page to your left if you're in Second Corinthians. In verse 18, the apostle writes, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He said, listen, when we gaze upon Him, we really see Him. There is something that's transforming about that. As we catch this clear glimpse understanding of who God is, who Christ is, then we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. To know His will, really know it, to trust Him, therefore, is to desire to to walk with Him to bear fruit. So yes, it is in a sense a bookend. But notice that Paul says this one is increasing in the knowledge of God. And so it begins with a knowing of God's will, that, that knowing of God's will that we get from understanding Scripture, from reading it through, from learning who God is. But, but then he says, as you obey, then, then, and as you bear fruit, and, and bear fruit in every good work, there is this increasing in the knowledge of God. It's not simply circular, so that you end up back where you started. It's more spiral in an upwardly, an upward spiral to where, yes, you come back to, to knowing Him, to knowing God, but, but your knowledge of God is more than what you started with. There is this sense of engaging with God leads us into a deeper knowledge of God. John Frame, from whom I quoted a minute ago, goes on and says, not only does a knowledge of God's will lead to our obedience, but obedience to God leads to an increased knowledge of Him. He writes... This is the converse of the previous point. There is a circular relationship between knowledge and obedience in Scripture. Neither is unilaterally prior to the other, either temporally or casually. He's a theologian, so he's writing this funny sentence. He just means that these two things go together. They're inseparable. It doesn't really matter where you start, but they're inseparable. That one leads to the other. Obedience leads to a greater knowledge of God. A greater knowledge of God leads to more obedience. More obedience leads to a greater knowledge of God. They're inseparable. If you break the two, then you cease in your knowledge of God. They're inseparable and simultaneous. Each enriches the other. It is certainly true that if you want to obey God more completely, you must get to know Him. But it is also true that if you want to know God better, you must seek to obey Him more perfectly. And that's the question, isn't it? As Paul prays for them, they increase in their knowledge of God. We resonate with that. We say, yes, I want to do that. And he says, all right, obey him. And you will increase in your knowledge of him. Dia Carson, another theologian, writes this of this passage. He writes, this is not a vicious circle. What Paul means is that knowledge of God's will, knowledge that consists of all spiritual wisdom and understanding, turns in part on obedience, on conformity to the will of God. We must learn something of that in order to obey it. Discovery of more of that. I'm sorry, let me put it up. Discovery of more of that will is contingent on obeying what we know of it. We would say we need to put into practice what we know 
Jesus would put it like this. Too much is given, much is required. And then what happens? More is given. More knowledge of God. Carson goes on, to learn something of God's will and to use such knowledge to live a life worthy of the master and utterly pleasing to him is to engage in the business of obedience. But as you get busy in the business of obedience, you get to know God better. That, in turn, impels you to more obedience, which in turn opens up new vistas in knowledge of, God's, of God and his will. Of course, as your knowledge of God and his will improves, you're gr- driven to great obedience. Such obedience is one point of access to greater knowledge of God and on and on and on. We know God as we read of him in scripture, as we study of him in scripture, but that isn't an end in itself, simply to be able to take a multiple choice test at the end of the day or to have our theological ducks in a row, all of which is good to do. It is to lead to something. And that leading to something is is moral. That leading to something is glorifying God. That leading to something, that something to which it leads is to live a life worthy of him, to do that which is good. And in the process of that, we will find ourselves as those who increase in our knowledge of God. Isn't it astounding to think of knowing God Really knowing God. There's a sense in which every human being knows God. Paul writes in Romans in chapter 1, this, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There's a sense in which God's revelation in creation speaks to us of who he is. And in that sense, people know him, know who he is, know that he is powerful, know that he is wise. They know that of him. Yet there's a suppression of that truth we know. Verse 21 follows, For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. Uh, and you get this sense that, that it is suppressed. Verse 18, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness... Suppress this truth. There's a sense in which, and please, I don't mean this as a put down or a sense of arrogance, which it might sound. But the truth is that even every atheist knows this of God. Knows that God exists. Yet suppresses that truth. Some very, very well. Some have suppressed that truth to such a degree they're fully, wholly convinced that there is no God. Others, just to the degree that perhaps, yes, perhaps, no. 
But in the suppression of this truth, you see, it's this basis of the same sin that took place as we read of in Genesis chapter 3, this same sin that says, I can be like God, that, that if there is a God, it really messes up my life. Because then I can't be, at least as I understand it, self-determining. I can't be the one who defines what is good and evil. And that's the sin in which Adam and Eve fell. That you could be like God, that you could put yourself in his place, that you can say what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what you should do and shouldn't do. There is no Lord over you to whom you must submit. And so you see, there is this suppression of truth. And and, and thus, when that happens, there is this estrangement from God from our side because we say we don't really want him. We don't really want to know him really. Or we might have evidences of him, but we don't want to know him intimately for him to be engaged in our lives and we engaged in his life or to live autonomous from him. That leads, of course, this just and righteous God because that's the injustice of all injustices to turn one's back upon a holy, righteous, loving, caring creator God and so then he takes this life away from us thus we experience death so there's this estrangement on both sides from God's perspective and from ours as well and so the question is how can anyone know God how can this desire not to know him be overcome in us Well, God, as we read through the scripture, continues, though, to make himself known, continues to reveal himself through a people. He comes to Noah, and he reveals his justice and his continued faithfulness. He comes to this man, Abraham, who becomes Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. In other words, I will be your protector and your provider. I will be your God. In fact, I'll make these promises to you that that through you a people will come, and from your people will come one who will bless all the nations, all the families, all the peoples of the earth. And so he makes covenant with Abraham, reveals himself to Abraham as this gracious, promise-keeping, faithful God. He comes to Moses and the people, and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He says, this is who I am. I am the Lord your God. I am. You shall have no other gods before me. I want you to be in relationship with me. To be in relationship with me means that you have to understand who I am. I am God. Thus have no other gods. And I will care for you. And I will provide for you. And I will be your protector. And I will be your provider. I will live among you. And in order for me to live among you, there will be representatives. There will be priests who represent you before uh, me. And, and they will be holy before me. And, 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 and because you would sin against me, there will be a sacrifice made so that I can live in your presence. But I will be your God. You will be my people. He comes to David and he reveals himself through David saying, you are my king. You are the righteous representative of God in the earth. But understand one will come who is the true king. And, and through you, David, they will understand. They will know this one who is the king and whose kingdom will come, the very kingdom of God, the prophets come and they they speak of one who is to come in the covenant that will be made. The prophet Jeremiah comes and he puts it and he puts it like this. He says, um, "But this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days," declares the Lord. "I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one." Teach his neighbor and and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. In other words, God says, they'll know me 
And when he says that, it isn't just they'll know me as creator or they'll know me as judge, but they'll know me. They'll be in relationship with me. They'll understand my grace and my forgiveness. And I will dwell among them. And Jesus comes. Uh, John, the apostle, speaks of Jesus like this. He writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That is Jesus. And so Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've known me, you know him. I've come to reveal. I've come to show. And you see, knowing God means everything. Jesus puts it like this in his high priestly prayer. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. There's only life by knowing Jesus. There's only life by knowing his Father. There's no life anywhere else. He says, if you have this understanding, this knowledge, this intimate relationship because you've received from him, because he's engaged in your life personally and you in his that you know who he is, yes, creator, yes, sustainer of all that is, yes, the one who is all wisdom and power and might, perfect in his being, this one who is Lord, this one who is Savior, this one who is gracious, this one who is free. You know him, you've received from him. That gives you, leads you into eternal life. Knowing him is life. Eternal, that's the value, the importance of knowing him. We come to know him, obviously, as we come and we study through the scripture, we know who he is. But now we read that we know him better by way of obeying him. In fact, so important is this knowing that it becomes a prayer on the lips of, uh, of the apostle. In Ephesians, uh, in chapter 1. We read this prayer as Paul prays for the church uh, in Ephesus. Verse 17, verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? So I want you to be able to see that. Because when you can see that, then you'll know God. And in him then is this life, this life eternal to really know him. It shouldn't be a surprise to us at all that obeying what we know leads to a greater knowledge of him. To really be able to engage in who he is. An athlete comes to know his coach better as he follows the directives of his coach. 
a businessman uh, comes to know his mentor better as he follows the dictates of his mentor. A student becomes, knows his professor better as he comes to learn and understand that which his professor is teaching and, and apply it and actually to engage in it, to really work at it. J.I. Packer, in a forward to a, a book you have to read if you haven't read yet. Mine's, this edition is pretty much falling apart. But this is the cool edition. This is the autographed edition. I was, you know. um, I'm sure you're impressed. Um, J.I. Packer and I did a wedding together a number of years ago in Vancouver. This is ancillary, and I'm sorry to even start this story. It means nothing other than we did that. I preached, however, and he did the he administered the wedding. We should have done it the other way around. Because I would have much rather heard him preach. And I could have done the wedding way better. <laughs> uh, I don't write books, but I, I know how to do the church thing, you know. It was the first wedding he'd ever done. I felt sorry for him. But uh, he probably felt sorry for me as I was preaching. I told him if I said anything that he recognized <laughs> that he had written and I didn't give him credit for it, well... That's just the way life is. But he writes this uh, as a, in his preface to knowing God. He writes, In a preface to Christian theology, John Mackey illustrated two kinds of interest in Christian things by picturing persons sitting on the high front balcony of a Spanish house watching travelers go by on the road below. The balconiers can overhear the travelers talk and chat with them. They may comment critically on the way that the travelers walk, or they may discuss questions about the road, how it can exist at all or lead anywhere, what might be seen from different points along it and so forth. But they are onlookers, and their problems are theoretical only. The travelers, by contrast, face problems which, though they have their theoretical angle, are essentially practical problems of the which way to go and how to make it type. Problems which call not merely for comprehension but for decision and action too. Balconiers and travelers may think over the same area yet their problems differ. Thus, for instance, in relation to evil, the balconiers' problem is to find a theoretical explanation of how evil can consist with God's sovereignty and goodness. But the travelers' problem is how to master evil and bring good out of it. Or again, in relation to sin, the balconier asks whether uh, racial sinfulness and personal perversity are really credible, while the traveler, knowing sin from within, asks what hope there is of deliverance. Or take the problem of the Godhead. While the balconier is asking how one God can conceivably be three, what sort of unity they could have, and how three who make one can be persons, the traveler wants to know how to show proper honor, love, and trust towards the three persons who are now together at work to bring him out of sin to glory. And so we might go on. This is a book for travelers, he says, and it is with travelers' questions that it deals. The Bible is a book for travelers. Not for a book of, it's not a book for spectators, not a book for critics. It's a book that says, if you want to know me, engage with me. 
Abraham engaged with God. There was a time when he, God said to Abraham that Sodom was going to be destroyed. And you could get a sense of, God, how can you do that? He began to scratch his head. At least that's how I visualize it. Saying, God, if there are 50 righteous people, will you destroy the city? And God said, well, of course not. How about 40? Of course not. How about 30? Of course not. How about 10? Okay, I get it, God. You're righteous and holy. I can trust you. Moses engaged with God on a particular occasion where God says, I'm not going with the people anymore. They can go on their own. They've sinned against me. I've had it. And Moses said, if you're not going, I'm not going. Why have you entrusted me with this people? Engaged with God. God says, I'll go. Our friend Habakkuk of just a few months ago engaged with God. says, I don't understand. God, what's going on here? In the, in the injustice of the world, how are you at work here? Are you silent? And God engaged with him. Now they got words from God directly. These people are very significant in redemptive history. We certainly don't place ourselves in their position to think God's going to, to speak to us directly as he did to them, but he's already spoken through them and through others to us concerning who he is, and we engage with him in the scripture, and we engage with him as we come to him. Notice this most powerful statement out of Psalm 25. Verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? That is, who's the man who comes to God and says, God, teach me. God, enable me. God, help me. I want to follow you because you're the Lord. I revere you. I fear you more than any. You're the one to direct me. Who's the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Verse 14. The friendship, another version has, the secret counsels. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Do you hear that? Come to God to engage with him, to trust him. Now again, this friendship isn't a friendship like you and I might have that's, that's mutual, that's equal. We're all both peers. We're on the same footing as human beings. This, of course, is a friendship with God. So you need to keep that in context. This is the friendship of a servant to a master. But still a friendship. It's different. This is a friendship of, 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 a, of, a, of, a, of a son to a father. We know the relationship there just by the terms. But this is still an intimacy, a friendship, you would see. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them... His covenant, His promises. He says, here's who I am, the keeper of all of these promises that you may know. So we come, you see, when we read of God, when we think of God, when we have a desire to know His will, we come out of fear saying, lead me, direct me, I will follow you. Jesus put it like this, John 17, I'm sorry, John 7, in verse 17, puts it like this. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus says, listen, if you're just coming as a critic, if you're just coming to, to criticize, if you're just coming because you want to suppress the truth that I bring, you're not going to get it. But if you come really desiring to know God's will, you'll get it, you'll see it. That's the fear of the Lord. We come with that, this desire to follow after him, to engage with him. To have dealings from him and to deal with him, to walk with him. And God says, if that's true for you, then come be filled with the knowledge of my will and all spiritual wisdom and insight. For the purpose of walking worthy of me, the Lord, your Savior, 
fully pleasing to me. You'll bear fruit and that fruit will be good works and you'll know me better. Because in the midst of this, I will reveal myself to you quickly. John chapter 14 verse 21. Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, read this backwards. The person to whom Jesus shows himself, reveals himself, makes himself known, is the person that he loves. And the person who is loved by his father. And the person who is loved by his father is the person who loves Jesus. And the person who loves Jesus is the one who keeps his commandments. Now our keeping of his commandments isn't to gain his love. There's something all before that. That he's loved us, thus we keep his commandments. But the keeping of his commandments, you see, is is expression of our love. It's so tied to knowing and loving him that one can't come before the other. We can't even describe why that's so. It's just simply one of those da moments. If you love him, you'll follow him. How could you not? How could you say, I love you, and then disregard him? In fact, Jesus was so astounded once at a group of people. He said to them, how can you call me Lord, Lord? How can you say to me, Lord, Lord, and yet not do the things that I ask? It was just inconceivable. made no sense to love him, to obey. To obey is because of love. But you see, in the midst of this, he says, listen, if you walk with me, I'll show you who I am. If you love the way you're to love, if you're to love, you love as I've called you to love, you'll learn about me. And I I suspect we can even think that through and say, yes, we learn about him because that will require us to be patient, to love as he's called us to love. And we'll learn about the patience of Christ. We'll see in our trying to be patient, his patience. As we love, as he calls us to love, we need to be merciful and compassionate. We'll learn of his mercy and compassion. What that really means, those words. When we love as he's called us to love, we'll have to forgive. And then we'll learn what forgiveness really means as we forgive. We'll say, this is what it means to Be forgiven. From him I know him. As we love, as he's called us to love, we'll sense our our weakness. And as we do, we'll plead our case to him that he would give us strength. And in the midst of his giving our strength, he'll reveal himself to us as the very one who gives strength and who gives gifts to enable us and to help us. We'll see his grace even as we come to him and our weakness and say, I don't deserve this, God. I've sinned in so many ways in this relationship already. But but I see how I should enter and help. And so please help me even though I'm a sinner, even though the last nine thoughts have all been wrong and sinful thoughts. Please help me now. And he will. And we'll see his grace and his mercy. And in the midst of all that... We'll see Jesus. You want to see Jesus? 
Help with family promise. You want to see Jesus work in the nursery. You want to see Jesus grab a Sunday school packet and teach some people. You want to see Jesus take a meal. You want to see Jesus make a visit. You want to see Jesus forgive. You want to see Jesus be patient. You want to see Jesus be kind. You want to see Jesus be gentle. It's there that he shows himself. Paul says, I want to know you. The power of your resurrection. The fellowship of your sufferings. As we walk with him, he will show us himself. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me and for us. That our greatest desire would be to know you. Thus, our greatest desire would be to walk with you. And in our walking with you, we shall see you, Jesus. Show us yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.